Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I have some very exciting news for you. Did you know that at this very moment in the studio with us is a minotaur that breathes radon gas? Oh, well, uh, I'm going to have to call... uh... Call, call your bluff on that one, Joe, because I do not see a single Minotaur in this uh, recording studio. No bluff. I speak the truth. There is a Minotaur in here. Uh, you, now, you can't see it because it is invisible to the naked oh, eye. Oh, of course. But there is a radon gas breathing Minotaur, and he's right behind you. Oh, uh, well, uh, so all I need to do is bring in, say, a radon uh, gas detector. And then we can confirm the existence of this uh, fantastic beast. Well, unfortunately, th- that would be a good idea, but... The radon gas that this minotaur breathes out is not detectable by normal chemical equipment. It's a, it's a different kind of chemical. It's not a it's not a physical chemical. Okay. Well, in that case, uh, let's bring in some sort of an infrared camera so we can uh, we can see this creature. Well, a funny thing about this invisible min- minotaur is that its body is completely consistent with the ambient room temperature, so it emits no infrared radiation at all. Okay, well, uh, let me get some spray paint, and we can sort of coat the general part of the room that it is in, and Robert, then we'll see its physical body. No, 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 no. You are imposing an unfair materialistic bias on my minotaur. This minotaur doesn't need to have paint stick to it. It has a different kind of body. It has a kind of ethereal body that paint goes right through. I'm beginning to think that this Minotaur has the magical ability to uh, conveniently weasel out of any practical uh, experiment that I can devise. Thou shalt not test the Lord thy Minotaur. <laughs> no, 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 no. Actually, I can, I can prove it to you, okay? I have a friend. You know my friend Jeffrey? Have you met Jeffrey? Is this another imaginary friend? No, no, no. Jeffrey's real. Jeffrey's got a buddy mm-hmm. who met a guy in Florida who saw the Minotaur and the Minotaur bit him on the shoulder. Oh, so you're bringing Florida man into this. But it bit him. Mm-hmm. Like you can even – I've seen the marks on his shoulder. I saw a picture of them. I got it in an email forward. Well, clearly the most likely explanation for these bite marks is uh, an imaginative beast. Thank you for finally acknowledging <laughs> this, Robert. Thank you. Now, I've been trying to get people on board with my Minotaur for a while, and it seems like like people just don't want to go along with me. But occasionally, you meet the right kind of person, the person who's willing to go the extra mile with you and say, yes, I, I'll follow you down that Minotaur road. Let's talk to you about your Minotaur. Let's uh, Maybe we can uh, spin it off into a podcast or a, or a multi-series TV show. Now, if you have already read the books we recommended in our summer reading episodes uh, this year, you will be recognizing what we just talked about is quite similar to a chapter in the nonfiction book that Robert recommended this summer, which was... Uh, the Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark by Carl Sagan. Uh, this was a 1995 book, and as I discussed in that episode, it, it still speaks to us today. There is, most of it is not dated at all. Uh, but there is this chapter where he, uh, he begins by describing a scenario where he's bringing somebody in and like our Minotaur saying, oh, well, there's a dragon in this garage. And, and when tests are proposed to, to examine the possible existence of this uh, dragon, uh, the same sort of excuses are made. Right. Can, well, maybe we can put some flour on the floor and see if it leaves tracks when mm-hmm. it walks around. Oh, no, no, no. This, this dragon levitates. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe we can check to see if it breathes fire with thermal detectors like you suggested, Robert. Well, no, no, no. The fire it breathes is cold fire. Mm-hmm. And so Sagan in this chapter I think presents a very clean, clear 
positive vision of what the skeptical mindset should be. And, you know, I've said on the show before that I think sometimes uh, – I, I have mixed feelings sometimes about like the the skeptic identity uh, because like I think it's a good thing to be skeptical and it's a good thing to be a skeptic. But sometimes I, I see it becoming a community on the internet that seems to sometimes pat itself on the back a little bit too much. Yeah, it become I think the way we've discussed it before, it's kind of like this party pooper mentality, you know. <laughs> Whereas ultimately, what Sagan proposes in this chapter is kind of it's more like. Oh, this dragon sounds amazing. Let me help you prove it. Let me help you uh, look at the the actual evidence for this. No, unfortunately, we do have to arrive at the conclusion that there probably is not a dragon in the garage and there probably is not a radon-breathing minotaur in the studio with us. And one of the, the lessons that Sagan draws from this is to be wary about claims that seem to be extremely elastic, where there's always a new excuse for why this one reason you want to help investigate the claim wouldn't actually work. This often comes up in, say, uh, investigations of psychic phenomena, you Mm -hmm. know, where people will say, no, I'm really a psychic. Yeah, I really do have dowsing powers or something like that. So you try to set up, oh, well, okay, let's do a test. Let's do a controlled test to see if you really can find water. And they're like, oh, no, 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 I can't do it right now because there's static electricity in the air. No matter what, there's always some excuse for why this test in particular this day doesn't work. But in today's episode, we wanted to get to a particular story that Carl Sagan tells in this chapter of The Demon Haunted World that uh, that is a really fascinating development on this scenario where normally you'd have a person who's presenting something that, that's probably not evidence-based. And then you've got an interlocutor who in, in our original example is somebody who's skeptical, who's mm-hmm. pushing back. But w- what happens when – say, social forces or biases or beliefs begin to work on the interlocutor too. Yeah. For instance, what if you had been – sorry, Joe, but but what if you had been really convincing about that Minotaur? <laughs> you know, what if you were just so passionate about it? Give me another chance. I yeah. can try harder. Where I – you know, maybe I started off just kind of humoring you and then I find myself actually believing that it's here. Well, Sagan tells uh, a story very much like this and it concerns um, – author and psychoanalyst Robert Lindner, who was called in by Los Alamos National Laboratory to treat a gifted nuclear physicist referred to by the pseudonym Kirk Allen. Now, this story is as it is presented by Lindner himself, right? So he is obviously changing some details to protect the identity of his patient. And so it's not verifiable which elements of the story are fictionalized, right? But he presents this as a sort of fictionalized version of a true clinical encounter he had. Right. Uh, It's also worth noting that uh, most of the individuals in this story, perhaps all of the individuals, are dead now. Yeah. Uh, Sagan sadly passed away. Uh, Linder lived uh, 1914 through 1956. And some of the individuals that were later – presumed to be uh, or suspected to possibly be Kirk Allen have also passed. So there's there's not a lot of new information out there about who who was actually being referred to and to what degree things were fictionalized to protect the individual's uh, uh, identity and, and also what could potentially have been tweaked just to make a better story. Because uh, Lindner wrote about this uh, in his book, The 50-Minute Hour, uh, which was published in 1954 and also uh, in a couple of articles for Harper's Magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of those uh, articles, part one and part two, part two are available online Is, right now. Are those the ones called The Jet-Propelled Couch? Yes, The Jet-Propelled Couch, which is a fabulous, uh, fabulous title. We'll try to have links to those uh, 
those articles on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Now, Robert, I was unfamiliar with the story of Kirk Allen before you suggested this topic for an episode. And I am so glad you did because th- this is really, really interesting stuff. I-, I had never come across this story before at all, and it really got my gears turning. Indeed, I was, I hadn't, I was not familiar with it until I read uh, uh, the, the Demon Haunted World, uh, though this story has been around for a while, obviously. So I imagine some of you out there have, have heard about it. So hopefully you'll enjoy revisiting it with us today. So one thing we should probably point out is who, who is Robert Lindner again? He was a, a practitioner of psychoanalysis, right, which right. is somewhat controversial. Indeed. Now, he, he, he actually has some, some pretty impressive things on his resume, though. He, he wrote uh, Rebel Without a Cause, the uh, hypnoanalysis of a criminal psychopath, which was published in 1944. And it's the book that inspired the title, and I should say the title alone, of the famous 1955 film starring James Dean. Not the story. Not the story, just the title. Because there's a line in the book where he says, quote, the psychopath is a rebel without a cause, an agitator without a slogan, a revolutionary without a program. You're harshing my buzz, man. <laughs> And he seems to have made some legitimate contributions to, uh, you know, understandings of uh, gambling psychology. And uh, Rebel uh, is also well, uh, well regarded, it seems, uh, as just a, 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 you know, an early work of um, psychoanalysis. Uh, he had a, an MA and a PhD in psychology from Cornell. He served as chief psychologist at the U.S. Penitentiary in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. And he later uh, operated a private practice in Baltimore. And through Rebel and other works, he helped expand popular understanding and uh, perceptions of psychoanalysis. Now, obviously, there are lots of reasons people have for being skeptical of the psychoanalysis tradition uh, in, in therapy. But he at least was a person who had real legitimate clinical practice with all these experiences. And we can learn from the experiences even if you don't necessarily, uh, say, agree with his framework for, for how to treat people. Correct. Now, this brings us to Alan. Kirk Allen, again, a pseudonym. Uh, Based on uh, Linder's writing, uh, we can say Allen was something of a a science fiction fan. A little bit. (laughs) Yeah. He enjoyed a rich inner world that was just full of spacefaring adventure. And he was especially a fan of a a specific sci-fi book series in which the main character shared his name, according to Lindner. So – uh, you know, we'll get into to how some people have interpreted this, but obviously there are uh, a few different, uh, very notable science fiction heroes of, from literature of the time that that, it, that you know John Carter is often brought up mm-hmm. uh, as a possibility. Uh, but uh, at any rate, uh, he has he he has an obsession, and this obsession seems to eventually cross over into delusion or near delusion, uh, with Alan believing that he actually pilots a spaceship in the future and that he's a lord of many worlds, and then he can think about it in just the right way and transport himself centuries into the future. Reportedly, Alan was fairly balanced. He had a reasonable work-life imagination balance, and uh, but his employers eventually became concerned that he was growing too distracted and dreamy. Uh, he was writing about everything. Some uh, He apparently wrote some 12,000 words on every aspect of this future world of his. So history, genealogy, biology, etc. Sagan points out uh, that one of these volumes had the title The Application of Unified Field Theory in the Mechanics of the Star Drive to Space Travel. <laughs> uh, 
which he says actually sounded fairly interesting given this idea that Allen's uh, alleged background is in physics, is, is physics, and he's a gifted physicist. It would be interesting to see what sort of uh, you know sci-fi propulsion uh, system a, a, a an obsessed physicist came up with. That is interesting. What if that's the way we actually discover some sort of warp drive? <laughs> is in the science fiction works of a of a daydreaming nuclear physicist. Well, you know, it's always important to note the importance of sci-fi in the inspiration of of actual scientists. I mean, you mm-hmm. you look, for instance, just at some of the. Uh, the notable rocket scientists of the the, the, the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And uh, so many of them were, especially as children, just very, uh, and young people, you know, very inspired by the sci-fi of the time. And I, I think that has continued to hold up uh, with, with scientists uh, today. Absolutely. But okay, so we've set this up where, where Kirk Allen, this pseudonym for this physicist, he's doing his work, but he's spending a lot of time daydreaming about this other world and apparently is somehow convinced that it's to some extent real and he can actually go there. He can travel through time into the future and be a space lord flying from planet to planet and having adventures in the cosmos. Right. So it reaches some sort of a tipping point here and his employers say, hey, you should go talk to somebody about this. Why don't you talk to our friend Robert here? And uh, and he will uh, – uh, you know, he'll work this out with you. So that's pretty much what happened. Uh, Lindner uh, engages with Alan, um, talks to him at length about his imagined world. And he, he realizes, quote, in order to separate Kirk from his madness, it was necessary for me to enter his fantasy and from that position to pry him loose from the psychosis. This sounds like a bad road. I feel like I feel like the guy in Pet Cemetery. You don't want to go down that road. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's saying, uh, let, "Let me let me go out on the ledge. Let me go walk into the flaming house." Uh, I don't know. We, we were going. It, we, we were we we're discussing it, knowing what's about to happen. Though. Yeah. Well, Be- I guess on the other hand, we should be humble. I mean, this guy had clinical experience, and we don't. So exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, but in retrospect, <laughs> uh, it, it ended up being a perhaps a questionable move. Because what happened next is that in discussions about Kirk's rich imagined delusion, Lindner uh, became something more. He became, in Sagan's words, quote, the psychoanalyst became a co-conspirator in his patient's delusion. Yeah, he describes or Lindner describes how he would go through all of these these materials that mm-hmm. Kirk Allen provided for him and he would like get into the world and he would start trying to find internal inconsistencies with like the treatises that Kirk Allen was writing about these space civilizations and all that and try to help him work out the inconsistencies and that this eventually led to him sort of getting into that mindset of like, wait a minute. How do I know this isn't true? How do you know that somebody else isn't mentally traveling into the future and becoming a space lord? That's right. In the jet-propelled couch, uh, Lindner writes, quote, The materials of Kirk's psychosis and the Achilles heel of my personality met and meshed like the gears of a clock. Oof. Quote, the transformation of fascination into psychic distress alarmed me sufficiently to make me take the necessary steps for extracting myself from my predicament. It acted first as a spur to self-analysis. Gradually, by the use of this accustomed tool, I was able to allay the more acute symptoms and to initiate those insightful processes that lead to, re- to recovery. But before I had completed this task, an amazing event occurred, which, in the space of one hour, not only broke what remained of my spell, but marked the successful conclusion of Kirk's treatment. Well, what broke the spell? 
So what, basically what's happening is that, that Alan is just sucking him into this world. Mm-hmm. Lindner is falling into this delusion. According to Lindner, this is Lindner's own, own take on the this, on this scenario. And then finally, Alan just comes up to him and says, uh, I'm sorry, it's all fiction. I made it up. Stop, stop believing in all of this because I created it. So he's, he, he admits that I don't actually believe I travel into the future and I'm a space lord and all that. I, I'm just daydreaming. I'm just making up stories. Right. We, the patient ends up being the one to say, I think this is because of, uh, you know, my loneliness as a child and my difficulties with women. He broke the spell of his own purported dis- delusion in order to save his psychoanalyst, or at least that's how Lindner framed it in uh, in his writings. Right. I guess all we have is Lindner's story to go on, so we don't know. But it, I mean, assuming this is true, that's a heck of a story. Yeah, and uh, and that's, of course, one of the things about anything that is a heck of a story. We also have to engage a certain amount of skepticism to what extent did one perhaps tweak the uh, the truth to make it a better story? That remains an open and unanswered question. Well, it does make me think about how – so the, the pillars supporting a propositional belief like, like – Kirk can travel into the future and be a space lord and mm-hmm. all that and he he goes to all these galactic civilizations. The the pillars supporting a belief like that are not just the contents of the belief itself and the evidence for it, but it's also social, right? I mean, we believe all kinds of things for essentially social reasons because like it would be really socially problematic to be skeptical in some scenarios, right? Right. Like you may have plenty of scenarios where somebody you love tells you something that you don't think is likely true, but you kind of believe them because of your relationship with them, right? Right. And you know, sometimes especially if emotions are heightened, you kind of have to play along, right? If you're at a, if you're at someone else's funeral and someone tells the bereaved everything happens for a reason, uh, you know, it's not my place to come in and start dismantling that nonsense, you know? Right. I'm more inclined to just simply nod and, uh, you know, pretend I didn't hear it. Right. I mean, yeah, the relationships sort of govern what gets said. And also we know that believing is not always such a, I don't know, such a clear transactional process like like uh, Sagan depicts in, in his chapter where he's like, well, somebody comes to you and says, I've got a dragon in my garage and, you, you know, you get to have this dialogue with them. Well, do you really? What if somebody comes to you and says, I have a dragon in my garage, but there's somebody in your family and it's somebody you care about and you don't really believe them, but also you've had this conversation before and trying to argue with them is really difficult. And so you just kind of go along with it for a bit. And then by going along with it, you start to kind of wear down your own defenses. And you're like, well, how would I know if they didn't have a dragon? <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things Sagan ends up comparing it to is um, is, is, is a magic trick. Yeah. You know, when you have a, have a magic trick, you have uh, you have two sides. You have the magician and you have the audience. And there is a contract between the two. It takes both for that magic trick to happen. And there's this, uh, you know, obviously there's a – with the magic trick, there's a suspicion of disbelief. Uh, but there there is this relationship that's going on. And in this relationship between Alan and Lindner, uh, we see what can happen when the energy kind of shifts. Uh, uh, according to, to Linder himself. And when Linder asked him why he kept going on with it, Alan replied, quote, because I felt I had to, because I felt you wanted me to. That's got to be a hard blow to a therapist. Well, I mean, he got part of a book and, and two Harper's Magazine articles out of it. So, right. uh, you know, it made for a great story, like we said. I mean, this certainly makes me think about what we've 
covered when we talked about the satanic panic before, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that that children were often coming up – children or even adults were coming up with elaborate stories of, of satanic ritual abuse – Basically in in sessions where it seemed like in retrospect they were being led by the people who were talking to them. You know, there was sort of a meme among some police investigators and some therapists that this kind of stuff was going on. And so they were they were almost encouraging people to hit the hit the tropes over and over again. And was there a pentagram on the floor? You know. Well, it reminds me of uh, Walter Stevens' uh, book, uh, Demon Lovers, about uh, uh, witchcraft persecution. Yeah. And uh, he pointed out uh, – uh, he was quoting uh, some particular individual or another who pointed out that that uh, the, the story that was extracted from suspect, suspected witches uh, were always the same because there was a particular story they wanted to extract. Yeah. You, you, can't, you can't imagine that all of these suspected witches came up with the same story. Yeah. It had to be there in the people who were extracting it. Right, right. They, and it had to be a story that fit existing motifs and, uh, and and sort of supported existing arguments. Now, I guess that's not exactly analogous to here because Alan had his own mythology. But mm-hmm. it seems like Lindner, once he got into it, is saying he was coaxing it. He, he was asking, you know, keep it coming. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we'll discuss some ideas about who Kirk Allen might have actually been. All right, we're back. All right, so, Robert, you've got some some theories to present on who Kirk Allen might have been. I assume it was not William Shatner. <laughs> uh, no, I think uh, I think the shat is in the clear on this one. But, uh, yeah, so th- we've had a, a few suspects uh, pop up over, over the decades uh, since this case uh, first came up. What were the possibly fictionalized, possibly true clues that Lindner gave that – he had the same name as the hero of a science fiction story. Right. So we have that to go on. Uh, and, of course, Lindner said that he was a nuclear physicist, which some theories like stick to that and say, all right, let's look for a physicist. Others say, well, that could be the fictionalized element. Yeah. Let's look for other individuals who, say, may have worked somewhere where they had a particularly high uh, security clearance uh, or, in other, or, or were engaged in something similar but not identical uh, to the work described in the jet-propelled couch. I wonder if it was the pivotal Manhattan Project researcher Flash Gordon. <laughs> well, see, that that's the kind of thing that would be, uh, you know, a red flag. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the other aspect being the idea that Kirk Allen wrote a lot, and therefore it makes sense to look at writers, yeah. individuals who were, say, say, highly published in sci-fi of the time. And so for this reason, one of the, the key candidates that's been brought up over the years was a man by the name of Paul Leinbarger, a.k.a. Cordwainer Smith. That mm. was his pseudonym, his writing name. Oh, and by the way, um, Leinbarger was born in 1913, died in 1966. He was a prolific sci-fi writer of stories all set within a single expansive and interconnected universe. And in his day job, he wasn't a nuclear physicist, but he was an East Asia scholar and a psychological warfare expert. Now, not quite a physicist, obviously, but one could see where the the Kirk Allen story might well have uh, hit the same key points without exposing his identity. Plus, who better to dupe a uh, uh, psychoanalyst into borderline delusion than an expert in psychological warfare, right? However, there's there's no real real solid proof to back this idea up. Yeah, so I had never heard of this guy, and I looked up his uh, stories to see what kind of stuff he wrote wrote about, if he kind of went along with the Lindner story. 
In a lot of Cordwain or Smith's sci-fi stories were set in a future Earth after a nuclear war where humanity is ruled by a system of government, almost like a kind of priesthood known as the instrumentality of mankind. Huh. Interesting. You know, I, I've never read any of, of his work, but I would be very interested to because another author of note uh, with a background in uh, as an East Asian scholar was M.A.R. Barker, who I've mentioned on the, the show before, who lived uh, 1929 through 2012, who wrote uh, The Man of Gold and created the early RPG world of, uh, of uh, Tecumel. Uh, so th- th- I, I would I would just be very interested to see like how uh, he incorporates uh, East Asian motifs into this uh, sci-fi universe potentially. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, uh, Cordwainer Smith sometimes is said to uh, to have had an unusual writing style where some of his stories are almost more like Chinese folk tales. Oh, interesting. Now, I was really interested in this idea of the instrumentality of mankind. If this is too much of a horrible tangent, we can cut this out. <laughs> but uh, I, I looked it up and I was like, what does he write about the instrumentality of mankind? I've got to know more about that. So this is from a story called Drunk Boat, where Cordwainer Smith writes, quote, The instrumentality was a self-perpetuating body of men with enormous powers and a strict code. Each was a plenum of the low, the middle, and the high justice. Each could do anything he found necessary or proper to maintain the instrumentality and keep the peace between the worlds. But if he made a mistake or committed a wrong, ah, then it was suddenly different. Any lord could put another lord to death in an emergency. But he was assured of a death and disgrace himself if he assumed this responsibility. The only difference between ratification and repudiation came in the fact that lords who killed in an emergency and were proved wrong were marked down on a very shameful list, while those who killed other lords rightly, as later examination might prove, were listed on a very honorable list, but still killed. With three lords, the situation was different. Three lords made an emergency court. If they acted together, acted in good faith, and reported to the computers of the instrumentality, they were exempt from punishment, though not from blame or even reduction to civilian status. Seven lords, or all the lords on a given planet at a given moment, were beyond any criticism except that of a dignified reversal of their actions should a later ruling prove them wrong. So my my two thoughts on this are that one this sounds like complex and very interesting uh but on the other I am afraid that this is what I sound like when I explain <laughs> my fiction to someone uh you know that it, that they're just going to sit there saying what what the three lords run all this by me again it's so many rules but yeah. also it's like um I don't know I was wondering it's almost like a weird combination of what you've described of Ian M. Banks, uh, the the culture, but mm-hmm. also with elements of like honor culture, yeah, and bearing individual responsibility for the action for one's actions. Now, again, without having read any of his work, I also have to assume that this is just a, a bit of exposition, uh, and that most of the, a lot of the the, the rest of the, the the text is going to be more of a like an old fashioned sci fi adventure swashbuckling kind of thing. Yeah, I think. Well, there are obviously characters. I think the some of the lords of the instrumentality are characters mm. in this, but I, but I haven't read it yet, so I'm I'm interested to check it out. It it might be worth a look. One more quick uh, excerpt here from the same passage. This was all the business of the instrumentality. The instrumentality had the perpetual slogan, watch, but do not govern, stop war, but do not wage it, protect, but do not control, and first, survive, (laughs) exclamation point. I like that. Uh, Yeah, so much sci-fi of the present is very pessimistic, especially about the power of governments. I mean, with 
quite good reason. I understand that pessimism. But sometimes it's kind of refreshing to see somebody engaging in at least some moderate utopianism about future governing systems. Uh, I think of like – what's an example? Oh, the culture is kind of like that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and uh, Star Trek has always been a classic example of that, especially, you know, uh, original Trek was very much an, an optimistic, almost, a, you know, r- religious idea of where science could take us. Yeah. Just don't think too hard about the, the uh, teleportation. <laughs> <laughs> right, of where science could take somebody that ain't quite you. Yes. <laughs> Now, there are a couple of other potential candidates that have been brought up over the the years. For instance, some uh, amateur detectives point to an actual physicist who had the name John Carter, as in John Carter of Mars. Oh, okay. Uh, So obviously when you have that name, as common as it is, uh, one might say, hey, maybe that's our Kirk Allen. And then there's another uh, possibility that has been brought up, uh, a man by the name of Francis Burton Harrison II, a.k.a. Kiko, who worked at uh, Los Alamos National Laboratory, much like uh, uh, Kirk Allen uh, supposedly did, uh, from uh, 52 to 92. And this uh, idea was proposed by Saul Paul Sirig in the New York Review of Science Fiction. Hmm. But of course, in all of this, we have to recognize that the real Kirk Allen could have been none of these men. Um, and we don't know to what degree Uh, the details were changed in the writing to either protect the patient's identity and also perhaps make the story a little more engaging for some reason or another. Yeah, it's true that we don't really know. I mean, it's it's hard to know to what extent Lindner's story is true, which elements are fictionalized, how much he may have embellished. Sagan takes it as an instructive lesson, even if we can't know for sure which parts have been embellished and all that. But I, I do think we can go to other examples of relationships between patients and therapists that have been two-way in this kind of way, where in some sense there's a cooperative lack of skepticism. And uh, maybe we should follow Sagan toward another one of those examples. Right, because uh, in the book and in relation to this example, he mentions uh, uh, UFO sightings, the alien abduction uh, uh, experiences, and of course, uh, you know, satanic ritualized abuse yeah. uh, allegations. UFO uh, abduction seem to be the main context of this conversation. Right, that's the one he spends the most time with. Uh, though he does de- deal with the, the, um, uh, the, the satanic ritualized abuse a fair amount as well, but um, – in all these cases, you know, he says that the the encouraging individuals are, you know, they're often mere teachers, counselors, or other authority figures, and they may be deep within the the altered reality of, of, of UFO theory or you know satanic uh, cult theory. Uh, the, you, for instance, you have US, UFO therapists who advertised in the back of publications about UFO sightings. Oh no! Yeah, so obviously that's probably not the. It's, it's pro- you know what you're going to get when you when you seek someone out like that, and especially if they give you material about UFO sightings for you to then read. Well, by recruiting from the pages of UFO sighting publications, essentially, you are almost guaranteeing that your patient already has things to draw from. Right. So the same can be true if, if you had an individual and there was some question of, of possible abuse and then the person who weighed in on it was, say, a social worker given to religious fundamentalist ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, still, Sagan points out that the idea that some psychiatrists and others with some degree of scientific training, that they could find themselves, they could give themselves over to this kind of nonsense is, is, is startling. You know, that uh, that you have people who, who do have some training in skeptical thinking, perhaps a lot of training in skeptical thinking, and they can still slide down this slippery slope. 
Yeah, but it's a good reminder that people with scientific training are are not superhumans. You yeah. know, they're not rationality machines. Scientific training is just it is an aid to proper critical thinking, but it's not something that makes you invincible. Yeah, it's a reminder that there's a challenge in thinking critically and not simply chasing after the explanation that feels best uh, or is more emotionally transferred or appeals to something deep inside us. Uh, no, we have to ask which explanation stands the test of, of critical evaluation and which one requires the fewest leaps of faith. Sagan says, quote, a friend of mine claims that the only interesting question in the alien abduction paradigm is who's conning who? Is the client deceiving the therapist or vice versa? I disagree. For one thing, there are many other interesting questions about claims of alien abduction. For another, those two alternatives aren't mutually exclusive. And again, this comes back to that idea I mentioned earlier about the magic trick, the, mm -hmm. the, uh, the fact that you need the magician and the audience for the trick to exist. Well, yeah, I mean, the, in a way, the, the audience is also, in, in a kind of limited sense, tricking the magician because the audience is playing along. The audience doesn't really think magic is happening on the stage, mm -hmm. but they're pretending to think that magic is happening on the stage in order to allow the magician to continue doing the magic without embarrassment. Like if the audience was all just scoffing the entire time, you know, the, the magician would not feel like continuing. Right. And in the context of a magic show, that type of audience member sucks. No, yeah. Nobody wants to sit next to that person. Right. Because you've entered a social contract when you go to a magic show. You, you, there's an unspoken agreement between everyone that says we'll all just pretend we're seeing magic here. <laughs> you know, you don't have to be like, that's not real. He made that up. I know. It would, wouldn't it suck if the person to your left at a magic show uh, was just a total, um, you know, just, just pointing out how every trick is done and just telling you how fake it is at every second. And then the person to your right uh, thinks that it is real and is blasphemous and is just screaming witchcraft at the stage. Well, both of those are the wrong way to experience a magic show. Right. You go to a magic show knowing it's all fake, but pretending it's real for fun. And a magic show is a safe environment. Mm -hmm. I, I think the, the, the problem in real life is you don't want to slide into another category, right. you know? And I, I actually, I encountered this a lot. We, we encountered this with some listeners writing in about conspiracy theories mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, wacky or more fringe ideas that come up sometimes and how they, how it's safe when they engage with them and they can say, oh, well, I can read about this and it's, it's interesting, it's wacky, et cetera. Um, but uh, but we all want to be able to stay in that place, right? To stay in that the center of those the the middle of those three seats in the in the theater. And I don't know if it is always safe because I think you know the media we consume and the the things we expose ourselves to work on us. Mm -hmm. They work on us in ways that we're not always aware of. It's the same way that people think um, it, advertising doesn't work on me. You know? <laughs> it works on other people. It doesn't work on me. I'm immune to it. I can mm -hmm. watch a million commercials, and I it will never change my purchasing behaviors. You are not immune to advertising. It works on you. And also by that same token, I think people need to be careful what kinds of, say, conspiracy media they expose themselves to. Because I, I know exactly what you're talking about. There are a lot of people who are skeptics who do not – they're not conspiracy theorists. They're not buying into the flat earth. But they might say watch conspiracy theory videos on YouTube because they think it's funny. Mm -hmm. But when you expose yourself to that kind of thing a lot, I think, I think sometimes it can start to 
make gears turn in your mind. It can start to kind of work on you. Even if you try to practice a certain level of detachment, there are there are ways in which we start just kind of succumbing to what we're exposed to. Yeah, I've seen it argued that one of the problems with conspiracy theories uh, is that there is an underlying uh, um, teleological explanation for the world. Uh, and yeah. so even if you're if you just not for a second won over by the idea that uh, that there are lizard men living in the center of the hollow earth or what have you uh, or that there's some sort of massive, uh, you know, conspiracy, uh, you know, doing something to our water, you know, whatever the conspiracy theory happens to be, you might not be won over by the details. But but what if the underlying teleological explanation for reality takes hold? The idea that things are happening for a reason. Yeah. And then how might that make you more susceptible to other uh, teleological concepts that uh, are not actually um, uh, healthy uh, for uh, an objective uh, um, understanding of the world? Well, I think a huge part of the appeal of conspiracy theory literature and videos and all that, not just conspiracy theories but alien abduction stuff and all Mm -hmm. that, is the conspiracy part. It's not just just that I believe the earth is actually flat – People say it's a ball, but actually it's flat. Mm -hmm. It's that the government is lying to us about the shape of the earth and scientists are lying. Like that's the crucial part because to believe in a conspiracy like that that's being perpetuated by all these people with power does give you a sense of, okay, there is a meaningful conflict and I can understand who the villains are and that they're doing something nefarious. Like it, it gives you a sense of purpose the same way that war gives people a sense of purpose. Exactly. That's a very good point. Though I've never quite figured out uh, why exactly the scientists want people to believe that it's a ball instead of (laughs) – Well, tell me, was this ever explored on the X-Files? Did they ever get into – I don't think they ever did Hollow Earth. (laughs) But hey, speaking of the X-Files, maybe we should come back to Carl Sagan and the idea of uh, insufficiently critical therapists dealing with people who who, (laughs) who have a delusion like that. So, So let's take a break and then when we come back, we can get into John E. Mack. All right, we're back. All right, so part of the context for Sagan's discussion uh, of of the whole Lindner and and Kirk Allen phenomenon is the Harvard psychiatrist John E. Mack, and and Sagan talks about Mack a lot, right? Yes, yeah, he spends a fair amount of time with him. He like he initially brings him up uh, in the book because he is uh, he's talking about uh, about dreams. He brings up Mack's 1970 book, Nightmares and Human Conflict, in which Mack writes that there's a period in childhood development in which there's little distinction regarding the difference between dreams and reality, and that the establishment of this distinction is, quote, hard won. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but it seems plausible. Uh, yeah, the, the main point that Sagan makes is like this – this passage, this this book, even would would indicate that Mac is a is a is a professional capable of realizing that dreams, hallucinations, that these can have a a, a huge influence on how we perceive reality. Yeah, um, and Mac did did start as a respectable mainstream psychiatrist. Yeah, Sagan mentions that he'd known him for many years. They were both involved in. Uh, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize winning physicians for social responsibility movement. I think they were both uh, – didn't they both campaign against nuclear weapons? Yes, that was a part of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it should also be mentioned that Mack won a Pulitzer for his uh, biography of T.E. Lawrence, a prince of our disorder. Oh, uh, of Lawrence of Arabia fame. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so yeah, he didn't just 
climb out of the woodwork and start advertising uh, UFOlogy courses in the back of a magazine or anything. Like this, this guy had uh, credentials. Now, earlier I mentioned the connection between John Mack and the X-Files. Why, why Mack and the X-Files? How do those things go together? Well, because he was a big proponent of the reality of alien abduction experiences at some level, at some kind of mysterious level, but also because – in the X-Files, Robert, I'm sure you remember this from some point. Or have you not watched the X-Files? I've remember. seen two episodes, remember? I've seen, I've seen the the creature that lives in the porta potty Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, and the one about the invisible elephant. Those are the two episodes. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. the worst one yeah. ever. You've seen one of the best ones and one of the worst ones. Yeah, the complete experience. Right? Well, you have missed out on one of my favorite running themes in the show, which is deep regression hypnosis. Oh. So whenever Mulder and Scully come across somebody who's experiencing missing time, they can't figure out what's going on. Where did all that – where did that night go? Mulder recommends deep regression hypnosis. <laughs> and this, of course, is a great – you know, it leads to jokes in our house. Like I can't remember where I put the gardening gloves. Well, let's try deep regression <laughs> hypnosis. And so uh, Christian and I actually talked about John Mack back when we did our, our two-parter on the science of the X-Files oh, yes. a few years ago because mm-hmm. uh, we were talking about deep regression hypnosis in that episode. Uh, but so uh, what does that have to do with, with John Mack? Well, apparently in the 1990s when Chris Carter was developing the idea of the X-Files, part of what got him going, part of what got him into the all of the, the intellectual fodder and territory that would become the X-Files was the work of John Mack. And as we were saying, Mack was originally a respected psychiatrist. He was Harvard Medical Faculty. Uh, But he became very interested in alien abduction experience, not just in the subjective experiences of his patients, but increasingly in the underlying reality of alien abductions. And he worked with more than 200 people who claimed to have been abducted by aliens. And so he, he appears to have believed them. But then again, sometimes it's hard to tell. He would say things that sounded kind of waffly, like he would seem to say he believed, but then he would also hedge. Here's one quote when he was talking to the BBC. Quote, I would never say, yes, there are aliens taking people, but I would say there is a compelling, powerful phenomenon here that I can't account for in any other way that's mysterious, yet I can't know what it is, but it seems to me that it invites a deeper, further inquiry. And to me, this kind of statement it, it comes back to Sagan's fire-breathing dragon, the invisible dragon in the garage. What specifically is it that's so mysterious? Like you should always be cautious, I think, when somebody insists that there something is real and highly significant. But when you ask them for further clarifying questions, they sort of retreat to the defensive battlements of vagueness and mystery and must be something and can't be explained. Like let's not uh, let's not be too quick to judge here about this about this idea that there's a dragon in the garage because clearly we're talking about it. Something's going on here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, pe- maybe maybe it's not a dragon. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Who's to say? But clearly, something very significant is in the garage. <laughs> But yeah, when people talk like that, you very often will hear them in a different context with a different audience talk more like, so when I encountered the dragon in the garage and when he blessed me with his his holy uh, cold fire. <laughs> but anyway, back to John Mack. So one of the things that Mack did in his sessions with people who claim to have had UFO abduction experiences is he would sometimes use something like hypnosis. I think he referred to it more often as relaxation techniques. Mm -hmm. But he would would put people in a hypnotized state 
and say, okay, let's draw out details of your experience with alien abduction and and flesh out all of the vague parts that way, which just – I mean we know lots of reasons now why that's not a good strategy for getting accurate information about what happened to people. And you think you would have thought more people would have uh, would have been clued into that just by the fact that uh, – think about hypnosis, something that is sort of stereotypically about putting someone in a heightened state of uh, suggestibility. And that's the state you're going to, uh, you know, use to, uh, to, 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 to find the truth of what happened? Well, yeah. I mean, so Mac defends – he defends his practices by saying, hey – you know, I, I think there are some criteria that make the information I get through these types of sessions uh, more reliable than normal face-to-face interviews. And so his criteria include the fact that he says this testimony was often against the self-interest of the person giving it. Like so people in this relaxation state or this hypnosis state would admit things that were more embarrassing or something like that. Uh, he also says that the memories recovered through this regression technique – would be more consistent with the independent reports of other abductees. That's another red flag <laughs> mm-hmm. because then again, you could be drawing from elements in the culture, right? Right, yeah. I mean everybody is is watching the same TV shows. So they're potentially watching the same films. Uh, they're reading the same accounts. Mm-hmm. And he also says that memories, uh, the details of which are drawn through regression or hypnosis, tend to cause stronger emotional reactions in the patient. That also sounds not surprising and not like a, a, a true uh, advertisement for their validity as factual. Mm-hmm. There's actually a great piece in Aeon magazine by the writer Alexa Clay who grew up around John Mack. She was uh, – or John Mack was her mother's partner. Hmm. And in this article, Clay writes, quote, I remember one summer evening in a beach house on Martha's Vineyard when I was about 11. We all watched as John regressed my aunt back into a past life. She lay on the couch recalling an incident in which she was a forest ranger who witnessed the death of a few people during some kind of avalanche. My aunt later told me that she was fully conscious of the experience but couldn't control what she was saying. It was like she was watching herself tell a story. John later tried to hypnotize my brother so that he wouldn't be afraid of spiders. And listening to this kind of story that Clay tells, I don't know, I, I, this was the conclusion I came to back when Christian and I talked about this, and I feel the same way now. You, you hear these these overt signs that it sounds like John Mack was somebody who was, who was kind of chasing something, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to diagnose from afar, but it really seems like this is somebody who's looking for ways to believe. Yeah, I mean, again, it reminds me of this idea of that uh, Wallace Stevens presented in, in *Demon Lovers*: the idea that the the, the witchcraft uh, theorist and the witchcraft, uh, essentially the persecutors, were were asking these questions because they they wanted they wanted proof. They wanted proof of uh, ultimately of the divine. But if you can't have direct proof of the divine, at least you can have pr- direct proof of the demonic. And maybe he wasn't – maybe Mac wasn't looking for something quite so specific. But, I mean, we can all relate to the, 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 you know, the desire for something wondrous in our lives. I mean, even Carl Sagan admits that, you know, he says many times, you know, that he would really love for there to be uh, aliens. Like, that would be tremendous. E- even Carl Sagan emotionally is a Mulder. Emotionally, yeah. he also wants to believe. He, he puts unsatisfying scully constraints on himself to prevent him from coming to false beliefs. 
So Sagan in um, in the, in the Demon Hunter world, he writes that Mac had once asked him uh, if there was anything to uh, the, to all the UFO stuff, and Sagan's answer was not much except on the psychiatric side. And Mac then, of course, proceeds to to interview all these self identifying abductees, like we've been discussing here, and he finds them quote completely persuasive because of the emotional power of these experiences unquote, mm. and uh, and he. Uh, and he proposes in his book, Abductions, that, quote, the power or intensity with which something is felt should inform us if something is true. And this is uh, something that, that, that Sagan rightfully calls a, quote, dangerous doctrine. Oh, yeah, that's a terrible way to judge what's true. Yeah, I mean, because for my own part, I can think of a number of ideas or concepts that I, I feel intensely about. And, uh, and, I, and I can make them meaningful, you know, life-changing parts of my existence. But it doesn't mean that they should inform one's objective understanding of reality. I cry more often about fiction than I do about the real world. I suspect I'm not alone in this. Yeah, I mean, the fiction is, uh, is, is tweaked in a way to, to maximize these reactions, right? Uh, but but Sagan, he, he says that he finds it perplexing that an expert uh, like Mac, who recognized the power of dreams and hallucinations, would jump to this conclusion. Aliens should be an explanation of last uh, refuge. Uh, Sagan also writes that if, if the Kirk Allen story is one of a patient saving the therapist, uh, then Mac was perhaps not so lucky. Well, the question I have is one uh, – the question I have about the comparison between the two is one that's earlier. Just based on these quotes you've read so far, do you think do, – do you think Mac already had a predisposition to believe in alien abduction before he got into interviewing these patients? Or do you think like Lindner – he got wrapped up in a relationship with the patient and and that emotional relationship of trying to treat the patient infected him with the the alien abduction belief. Do you see what I'm saying? Is it yeah. more like the Kirk Allen story or did he already believe going in? Well, I wonder if yeah, if the connecting thread here is that is, is perhaps one of empathy, like the, just the mm-hmm. ability to just really feel what someone is telling you, and and certainly. And this is something that, that uh, Christian and I talked about when we did a, a two-parter on, on alien abduction experiences. Is that that even though we we deny the the uh, you know the reality of of alien abduction experiences, uh, the objective reality of them, uh, certainly there can be a sub- subjective reality. There can still be there is something there that that can be a, a trauma or an experience, no matter how warped it has become through uh, manipulation of memory mm-hmm. or uh, some other factor. Like that, that there, there can still be this emotional thing that is raw and real. And then ultimately, if you have someone who is very uh, receptive to those kind of uh, you know em- emotional experiences, then yeah, I could see where that could have an impact on what you believe. I think you're absolutely right. But then again, we also don't want to accidentally – Make it seem like, you know, oh, if if you care about somebody, if you have an empathetic connection with them, uh, then you just want to validate all the things they believe that clearly aren't true because right. you don't want to do that either. I mean that that's harmful to people. You don't want to validate people's delusions. So I guess the, the trouble is finding ways to, you know, to to relate to people in a positive way to show you care but without telling them, hey, you're right about being abducted by an alien. That really did happen. Right. I mean it really underlies the um – the immense responsibility that is uh, that is undertaken by by professional uh, psychologists and uh, and therapists. Yeah, you have to be able to 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 in a sense walk that line and not fall into some of the the pitfalls on either side. 
Uh, now, of course, I, I have to be uh, I have to point out too that in both Mac's uh, case and Lindner's case, they both were able to to get some books out of this. <laughs> and, uh, and probably get some, uh, you know, uh, some uh, book advances. So, um, so what if you have a, a cynical approach to? Well, I mean, if there's, I mean, we're all in this to make money. So, I, uh, you know, I under, I understand the uh, the inclination, but uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I admit, I, you know, I'm not like his biographer or anything, but I've read a decent amount of Mac, and it, it seems to me like he is genuinely mistaken about things. Hmm. I don't get a very cynical vibe from him. Yeah. I, I get the feeling that he's somebody who is smart, who is even wise in a way, but who just got led down a really unfortunate path of credulity about, you know, kind of vague beliefs that he couldn't back up with evidence. Yeah. I mean, it comes down to just all those interviews that he did, hundreds of interviews. Like how often is he interacting with this worldview that is uh, – that doesn't actually represent reality. And uh, I can see where that could take a toll after a while. All right, so there you have it. This is the first of two episodes that we're going to do. So we're not done with Kirk Allen just yet. No, one of the things we haven't even explored yet is the whole science of daydreaming and what it means when – because – so at the resolution of the story, we hear that Kirk Allen in fact does not necessarily believe he's traveling to the future and all that. He was just keeping it going in order to satisfy Lindner's curiosity. But but still supposedly he was – according to, to Lindner's account, something was bad enough that his, that his employers called in a, a, a psychoanalyst. Right. He was clearly spending a lot of time daydreaming about these science fiction worlds. So what's going on there when people are not necessarily deluded about what's real and what's not, but they're spending lots of time in an internal fantasy to the detriment of their work life and their relationships? Well, we'll discuss it on the next episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And in the meantime, you can head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find everything that we're up to. So you'll find all the podcast episodes there. Uh, you'll also find some instructive tabs at the top of the page, such as our store tab, where you'll find our fabulous collection of, uh, you know, of merchandise with our logo or show-specific designs. Merch up. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, hey, you'll also find links out to our various social media accounts and just general ways to get in touch with us. Big thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other, with ideas for future topics, or with uh, just a, just general greetings, you want to say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.